Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC-FM and Light 100.5 WRCH. Aaron Kupek with you this Sunday morning and we are pleased to be joined by Charlotte Ansel, Director of Energy Strategy Development at Eversource. Good morning to you. Good morning. Great to be here. So we are talking about the zero carbon future. That's right. Well, all of the states in New England, uh, Connecticut included, have committed to uh, go to reducing greenhouse gas emissions 80 percent from 1990 levels by the year 2050, which means that our energy future is going to be increasingly lower carbon to ultimately zero carbon. And how heavy a lift is that? It's pretty heavy. It's pretty heavy. And let me break out uh, for listeners how uh, carbon emissions work, greenhouse gas emissions. Think of them in three big buckets. The first is power generation. The second is transportation, so how we travel throughout our state. And the third is heating, so how we heat our state. Um, interestingly, the two largest drivers are transportation and heating. We frequently think of power generation as being the biggest driver, but that's only about 20% compared to 40 and 40% for uh, uh, transportation and heating. Eversource is involved in a number of projects to help reach that zero-carbon future. Everything from batteries to offshore wind. Tell us about that. That's right. So um, our job is to deliver our Connecticut customers safe, reliable, and affordable electric service. Now, we know everybody is dealing with um, tight budgets, tight times, and so we try to think about affordability and reliability above everything else. Um, we know at the same time, though, we're going to have to tr transition the Connecticut electric grid. And let me describe for you, that was designed about 100 years ago based on the premise that you have a couple big fossil fuel plants that would push power out to the outside of the state, like Northwest Connecticut, where I'm from. Um, that has actually now evolving where the cost of solar has dropped. We now have batteries. We have more uh, what are described as distributed generation sources, so smaller power generators that are scattered all over the state. And so the grid will evolve from a centralized system to a decentralized system. What sort of mix is Connecticut's power grid right now in terms of sources of energy? Right now, it is heavily natural gas uh, focused and, and with also some nuclear contribution. I want to point out that um, nuclear is zero carbon and natural gas is uh, significantly lower co carbon than oil or other types of fossil fuel power. So that has actually delivered significant carbon emissions savings already. Uh, we will be moving, though, to a grid that relies on um, uh, larger renewable resources like offshore wind. Now, batteries in particular, they've gotten better, they've gotten bigger in some cases, and that means you can use them for more purposes. Uh, how is Eversource using batteries in Connecticut? 
we see batteries as a significant part of the grid. Another thing in terms of the history of electricity is that the thing with electricity, unlike a lot of other commodities, is that historically we've never been able to store it. So you have to use it instantaneously when it's generated, which means that we have to build the grid out to the highest amount of electricity that we would ever use. So the way I describe that is I'm one of five, and that would be like, and I have my uh, brothers and sisters and my parents come on Christmas. That would be like me building a house with enough bedrooms for that one day of the year that they come spend the night. Doesn't It's not always a rational or cost-effective way to do it. So batteries will enable us to store electricity at scale for the first time and put it back onto the grid when it's most expensive. And that, over time, will enable us to reduce uh, the overall investment in the size of the grid and not need to oversize it. So, for example, if you store power generated by solar on a sunny day for a cloudy day. Exactly right. Where are these batteries being placed? Is there one central hub, or are they going to be decentralized? They're going to be decentralized, and uh, Eversource will be proposing in Connecticut this year. We've been doing a lot of work sharpening our pencils on it. Um, Three different battery projects that are uh, utility-scale, meaning larger. And at a high level, what those projects will do is enable us to serve rural areas that have significant reliability issues because our, our single biggest culprit of reliability is a storm. We have a tree that falls on the line. And every customer who's served by that line is taken out. And then we have to roll a truck to fix it. It's expensive. It takes a long time. Our customers aren't happy, and therefore we're not happy. So in some of these rural towns where there's a lot of trees, therefore a lot of outages, we are going to be able to site um, batteries in places where people can't see them within our substations. And they will basically serve as a big backup generator, clean backup generator that will enable us to power the entire town when it otherwise would have been out. And they will also avoid the cost of us building a second redundant distribution line to improve reliability. So we're very excited about that. We will also, with those batteries, when we don't need them for outages, use them to reduce energy peaks, which um, at a there's an energy peak at a yearly level, and then there are monthly energy peaks. Those set about a billion dollars of, co- of costs for Connecticut customers of energy costs. We'll also use those batteries to reduce those energy peaks. So when it's a peak time, we'll take the energy from the battery, put it back on the grid. That is also going to result in a lot of cost savings to Connecticut customers. What's the timeline for getting these batteries online? Well, we're hoping to get them online in the next two years. We're poised and ready to present them at the um, uh, Pura, which is our regulatory agency. And we're um, excited. We've done a lot of advanced work. And uh, we challenge ourselves to make sure that they're cost-effective for customers. So our goal is to make sure that the savings that are occasioned by the battery more than exceed their costs. So we look for these to be investments that actually lower rates, don't increase them. Has the proposed locations for these been uh, disclosed yet? No, but I'd love to come back when it is and 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 have your audience be one of the first to hear about it. Okay. And now, thinking back 20 years, with deregulation, Eversource, or back then Connecticut Light and Power, got out of the electricity generation business and became strictly a distribution company. Has that changed at all as we enter the renewable energy realm? That hasn't changed directly. So our job and our charter is to serve customers in both 
the transmission of power. So that's think of like the big highways, the big lines, those those big three bar lines that you see serving power, and then also the distribution of power. So once it gets off the highway and gets on a regular road, and we bring it to your home with a simple pole and wire that you see in front of your house, that's still our primary charter. We have as a company. Also, taken a step into the competitive space because we've got a commitment to do zero carbon energy, but in a it's got to be cost effective in a cost effective way. So we have a partnership with this Danish company that's the leader in offshore wind. Their name is Orsted, and we have proposed some of the most cost effective offshore wind. Projects in the country,、um, offshore wind. I want to mention is actually now decreased in cost substantially. So the first offshore wind project that was awarded a contract in Massachusetts, Massachusetts customers are going to pay about six and a half cents for that power. If you were to go out on the ISO New England wholesale market and and buy power from gas generators, that power would be at about four and a half cents. So we're starting to get in very close proximity of、uh, large offshore wind projects and the wholesale gas markets. Where and what sort of offshore wind project is proposed to benefit Connecticut? Well, Connecticut、um, is out there、uh, looking for a, a, a competitive procurement of. Uh, offshore wind,、uh, so that is something that will develop. And the 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 folks in Connecticut, the Connecticut regulators, are being very fierce in terms of how they're evaluating those projects and making sure that they're the most cost effective options to serve customers. And when you say offshore wind, you mean way offshore, right? I do. These are think of these as、uh, thousand foot turbines. Their blades are sometimes three to four hundred. Um, uh, feet in length, and they sit, uh, uh, you know, tens of miles off the coast. Also, in places that they、uh, can't be seen, and、um, and are sited in a way with a lot of sensitivity to environmental impacts and also impacts to the fishing industry. And again, what sort of timeline are we looking at for large-scale offshore wind benefiting the state? Yeah, that's a little bit of a longer time frame. Think four to five years. The environmental review alone to get an environmental permit, all of the environmental permits to construct these offshore wind projects takes about two years, sometimes more, and then the actual construction schedule for、um, these projects, where you're putting in somewhere between often seventy to a hundred. Thousand-foot turbines that, by the way, are constructed via barges,、um, and then in the actual ports,、uh, um, that's a takes a while. So about two years time frame. Are there other places in the country or overseas where offshore wind projects are in full-scale operation? Well, we picked our partner Orsted because they are the global leader in offshore wind. And with something like offshore wind, we want to make sure if we're going to get behind it, we want to work with somebody who's done it before and done it best. And so there are actually、um, several double digits operating wind projects, many of large scale throughout. Uh, the world. There are several in、um, Scandinavia, and then also off the coast of England.、Uh, Orsted has been a leader in developing those projects. We always look at: Are they delivering them on time? Delivering them on budget in a way that the customers that serve them are very pleased with. Are there certain conditions that you look for in terms of you know weather patterns and things where it's it's best to locate offshore wind projects? 
Yeah, we do look at that. One thing you look at is the shelf depth of the ocean. And actually, um, the coast of Massachusetts has been described in the Northeast, has been described as the Saudi Arabia of offshore wind because those conditions are very good. So it's a relatively shallow shelf and very significant wind speeds, which is the the perfect matching and pairing. So we think that um, the, the uh, offshore wind done off the Northeast, so long as it's done with the utmost environmental sensitivity and sensitivity to other stakeholders like the commercial fin- fishing industry, has the potential to provide a lot of value to New England customers. How important is proximity to large population bases? Do you lose a lot of electricity in transmission? Appreciate the question. Um, that's re- Transmitting power is kind of like picking up, when you pick up a handful of dry sand at the beach and you walk, the further you walk with it, you'll lose some of the, the the sand because it falls out of the cracks in your fingers. Same thing with respect to electricity. So it's always most efficient if you can deliver that electricity straight into a pocket of significant electricity use, like an urban area. So these offshore wind projects are also designed to, to transmit the power directly in to um, uh, Boston and Hartford areas where there are a lot of people using electricity that can directly benefit from them. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Charlotte Ansel. She is Director of Energy Strategy Development at Eversource. Transitioning to transportation now, electric vehicles, they've become more feasible for more people because of longer battery range and also more charging stations. Where does that stand in Connecticut? Well, we also are poised to present um, partnering with the state of Connecticut to build out infrastructure to support a significant amount of electric vehicles coming onto Connecticut roads. Uh, The state of Connecticut has actually committed to having 150,000 electric vehicles on Connecticut roadways by 2025. Uh, We got a a ton of room to go. We have uh, less than 10,000 on Connecticut roadways right now. But let me tell you why we are really bullish about electric vehicles. Electric vehicles have come down significantly in cost. So you can now buy a very good electric vehicle with uh, in the range of about $35,000, and in some cases less, in some cases substantially less, because there's a lot of incentives available. The range, as you said, of electric vehicles has actually exploded. So um, there are many electric vehicles that now have ranges in excess of 300 miles. And then the operating costs of electric vehicles are substantially lower than gas engines. So, for example, uh, a conservative estimate would be that the cost of uh, uh, per gallon of electricity is about the equivalent of paying $1.50 for gas, so much less cost. With electric vehicles, you don't have any maintenance, so you don't have to do an oil change or a brake pad replacement because they have regenerating, uh, regenerative braking. So we think that's going to be a really exciting uh, development. And, and all the major auto manufacturers are proposing mainstream models of electric vehicles in the next three years. So we think there's going to be uh, electric vehicles are going to become a mainstream option for customers in the short, short, short order. Now, it seems that <laughs> we'll... If you have an electric vehicle, you can plug in for free at a lot of places. Once there's critical mass, is that still going to be the case? That is true, and I want to let listeners know that. that, And I actually drive an all-electric vehicle, and I've been amazed how many places will let you charge for free. So that makes those economics even better. 
We agree, though, that over time we're going to see an uptake of electric vehicles. The forecast I see is, is that by 2030, about 40% at least of new vehicles will be electric, and that might even be more aggressive. So, yes, I think the free charging will be less. Um, the cost uh, of electricity, though, is lower, all things considered, than the cost of gasoline. So, we think that will be continue to be a very cost effective uh, alternative for customers. Now, roughly how many charging stations do we have in, in Connecticut now, and do you know what's being proposed in the future? I do. We have roughly um, uh, a couple thousand chargers in Connecticut. Not all of them are publicly accessible. Some, like Tesla, you have to be an actual Tesla vehicle uh, owner to, to use it. Um, we are going to be proposing to exponentially increase that uh, the amount of available chargers. I want to note um, that we think we're, we always are putting Connecticut customers first and costs first. So, we are proposing to help build the electrifying infrastructure to wire up the chargers, but we think it's appropriate for the charging manufacturers and vendors and third parties to own those chargers themselves. We won't be proposing on behalf of Eversource CLNP for, for customers to be in any way uh, involved in owning those chargers. Now, home chargers were also a big piece of the puzzle. Can most people install those in their homes without updating their electrical system? They can, and I'll tell you, I installed one a couple months ago. And what you do is have an electrician come in, and he or she installs the equivalent of a dryer plug, so the same type of plug you need to plug your dryer in. Costs in the range of two to $300, and it is done in about a day. And then what you do is you come home at night, you, you uh, uh, put your vehicle in the garage, you plug the charger in, and when you start the next day, it's got a full charge, so you never have to go to the gas station and never have to work about charging up, worry about charging up. How quickly is the technology evolving in the electric vehicle realm? It's evolving very quickly, uh, and we expect that two things are going to happen. One, costs are going to come down, and two, range is going to be exceeded. So we think right now the uh, a strong estimate of range of electric, of electric vehicles is about 300 miles. We expect in the next two years that we'll see more offerings in the four to 500 range and that those will be increasingly more cost-effective. I also want to note that one thing that's really fun for listeners about driving an electric vehicle is it has what's called instant torque. So the battery sits right by the wheels and it accelerates instantaneously. The Chevy Bolt, which is a very affordable in the range of 30000 or less, depending on the incentives you get, electric vehicle, over 200-mile range, accelerates as fast as most of the Maseratis. Wow. Zero sixty. So just to put that out there for people who like to drive cars, and I like to use the acceleration metric because it's not about breaking speed limits, but it's just about getting up to the speed limit quickly. How is the Northeast compared to other regions of the country when it comes to having accessible charging stations? California is the leader, and um, portions of the Northeast are uh, uh, doing pretty well. Massachusetts, Vermont's actually been a, a, a state leader in, in electrifi electrified chargers. And what we'd like to do is see Connecticut added to that list. But again, we want to make sure it's done cost effectively. I also want to add that electric vehicles over time are actually, when we, assuming that we do it right, which we will, are going to help dec decrease electric rates for Connecticut customers over time because they're going to mean that we sell more electricity. And in our business, when we sell more electricity, we have more electrons over which to spread our fixed costs. So that means that um, costs go down for all Connecticut customers. 
with that extra demand on the power grid, what sort of upgrades have to be done there? Well, that's why I said we got to make sure that we do it right. Um, one of our plans, and something we'll also be proposing in the second half of this year, is for all those home chargers you described, we know that 80% of electric vehicle charging happens in the home, and that's because it's the most convenient when you drive in at night. Um, we are proposing to... Um, through wireless technology, aggregate and control and manage people's charging patterns in their home in a way that's imperceptible to them so that we can manage charging patterns and making sure and make sure that we don't have everybody coming in at five, plugging their cars in and blowing out transformers. Um, we're also working on modernizing our Connecticut grid and making smart, careful investments to make sure that we're ready. And we think with a combination of those two things, electric vehicles will... Um, the, the positive electric sales that we'll have from electric vehicles will, over time, help put downward pressure on uh, Connecticut customers' rates. Now, for funding all of the upgrades, mm -hmm. where does that money come from? Mm -hmm. So that money comes from our uh, our customers. So that's why we always are looking at, we're going to make this investment up front. We balance it against what it would be the entire cost of the the investment in rates over its life against what will be the direct savings going back to reducing direct expenses that flow through to Connecticut customers. We compare those on a ratio when we look to make sure that that ratio is in excess of one, meaning the direct savings or benefits exceed the costs. Okay. And moving back toward other sources of renewable energy, we talked about wind, we, we talked about batteries. What other sources are in the mix? I'm thinking fuel cells and solar. Yeah, fuel cells we're um, always looking at, always excited to be part of the Connecticut fuel uh, uh, fuel cell industry. So we're always looking to see how we can be uh, supportive of that. Um, we do hear from a lot of commercial customers that they're using fuel cells, what, what we describe as behind the meter, meaning they're using it within their business to reduce their peak energy and therefore their costs. So we try to be supportive wherever we can on that. We also think solar both at a large scale and also rooftop solar, meaning customers who choose to can put solar panels on their roof and use it to offset their energy use will also be a significant part of the solution. Is Eversource involved in any major solar projects at this point, or is, is that not part of your your purview? No, it's not. We look to be involved and helpful where we can. Um, to date, there have not been any opportunities for Eversource to be involved directly in building solar. And going back to the batteries you described earlier, these are farther along in other states in your territory, correct? They are. So we have two really big batteries that we're building in Massachusetts. One is going to sit in Provincetown, so that's on the very most eastern tip of Cape Cod. It is going to enable us to island three towns on the Outer Cape, Provincetown, Truro, and Wellfleet in the event of storms, and also avoid building a backup uh, power line. And then we also have one in Martha's Vineyard that's going to enable us to significantly reduce our reliance on some gas-fired peakers to serve the island. And batteries as they're, they're currently built, how long could you survive on battery only if, if, if the power goes out? For we try to build our size our projects appropriate, appropriately around how long would we need the battery to supply the town to give us enough time to safely roll trucks and fix the outage. So that is usually somewhere between five to ten hours. Okay. 
And is this being done already in other parts of the country or are we kind of a leader on this? We're a leader in terms of using batteries to provide backup or islanding to entire towns. To our knowledge, that's not being done anywhere yet. Are you examining any other uses maybe in, in the future once these are, are in place? We are. We um, are looking at batteries. How can we use batteries to help the integration of more renewables? So as you said, solar and wind are both fantastic resources. But if the sun goes behind a cloud or the wind stops blowing, they can stop instantaneously. We can have a huge uh, drop on the grid, which can be a very dangerous thing. So we're also looking at and piloting using batteries to back up those renewable resources to um, to provide cleaner power when they're not generating and also to reduce energy peaks. If people want to learn more about Eversource's energy strategy, where can they go? Go to our website, eversource.com. All right. Anything else to add in our, our final moments? No, delighted to be here, and folks should be excited about an energy future that's cleaner, but also more affordable and more reliable. She is Charlotte Ansel, Director of Energy Strategy Development at Eversource. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Happy to be here. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.